The Golden State Killer terrorized communities for a decade, but his crimes haunted anyone who came across his path for years to come. Join us as we explore Michelle McNamara's curiosity and dedication in catching the Golden State Killer in her book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. It's Josie, and we are Potheads to Read. <laughs> we got that a little bit better this time. That was a lot better this time. Uh, practice makes perfect, I see. Yeah. How is everything going? Good. It's been, I feel like it's been really busy this month. Not as busy as December, Christmas time busy, but just busy with starting school and getting into that and just trying to do everything that I'm supposed to be doing, but it wasn't horrible. It's just busy. (laughs) Yeah, I understand. It's the end of January, but we'll be releasing this in February and I will still be in Florida when this episode comes out. And I just have things that back home that just keep stacking up a little bit that I'm excited and anxious for, but also there's still a lot to do here for work. So we're just kind of moving along, but we're kind of at that point in opening our restaurant where we have been working kind of nonstop, and now this week we've been working longer hours to get everything finalized because we've had all of our staff coming in. So we're doing a lot of st- stuff when the staff leaves. So I don't know. We were just all kind of so exhausted tonight. I bet. But it's been really good. We've had a lot of fun, too. So not That's all work. Not all work. We get to play around a little bit. Yeah, but I mean, there is freezing temperatures in Chicago that I'm missing, which I'm not sad about. (laughs) Darn. I know. I had a friend send me a screenshot of the weather today, and it was negative four. Yeah, I don't miss that that type of cold. I I do not miss it. Although we had torrential downpour for like most of the night um or most of Thursday like from like midnight until like 1 p.m on Thursday so yeah we had a lot of rain yesterday I mean a lot of rain for southern Florida so it rained longer than 20 minutes at a time it rained for like an hour (laughs) so it was um it's not so bad. I saw a friend's post and it was the weekly forecast on Facebook and it was Saturday. It was like one degree. Sunday was one degree and then it was <laughs> zero degrees and then two, de- two degrees. So um, it just kind of looked like that for the whole week. So 
I can't be too upset. I'm missing that weather. Uh, I'm not going to lie, though. I really miss my cat. (laughs) I bet. Um, I mean, I've done other openings where it hasn't been so bad. But for some reason, this opening, I've really been missing her snuggles and her honoriness. Her catness. Her extreme catness. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know. Well, she's going to let you know how she feels when you you go back. (laughs) Yes, she will. Yes, she will. Uh, Fun times. Yeah. So, do you have a Harry Potter fun fact for us tonight? I do. This, I just thought was really cute and a little bit more lighthearted considering the subject we're about to go into. So I actually found this fact on Pottermore. So if any of you guys are big Potterheads like us, um, you might have already read this. But I will say it anyway. So J.K. Rowling chose to feature King's Cross Station in Harry Potter as a homage to her parents. In King's Cross Station... J.K. Rowling revealed that in that the London station had special significance for her, hence its importance in the Harry Potter books as the gateway to platform nine and three quarters. Of course, a train is also the setting on which J.K. Rowling thought of the concept of Harry Potter in the first place. So the moral of this story is it takes is to take more trains clearly. <laughs> My son Dashwood probably agree with that he would absolutely agree with that as he really loves trains he loves trains i mean he's not like he was um when he was really little like yeah between like one and i'd say five it it was about when he turned five that he started having more interest in other stuff but between one and five, it, it was constantly train this, train that, train this, train that, and all the trains. <laughs> and then when he hit four and a half or so, all of a sudden he was like Mario and superheroes, and <laughs> um, so he's definitely branched out in his in his favorite department. <laughs> but he he still loves trains, like because we used to live up in Virginia, and there was a a little town that we always went to called Quantico mm. and there was a train station there. And when my husband went and got his hair cut every week, Dash and I would go to the train station and just sit there and watch the trains go by. And he was always like, can we get on the train and, and go? And we never did go from Quantico, but we did take a train up to New York city one time. So that was his huge highlight as a four-year-old was <laughs> to New York City. He still talks about I, it. That's so funny. I do remember when I was there for his fifth birthday, we did go see the train at Quantico. I remember that. No way. <laughs> we would never do that. <laughs> so weird that we would do what the five-year-old wanted, but we did. Well, it, what's funny is like when we would go to – the train station and just sit there and watch the trains like sometimes people would show up to like get on a train and dash and i are just sitting there in the uh, p 
people would be like, so do you know what time the train is coming? I'd be like, no, we just come here and watch the trains. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm like, we're not customers. We're not going to ride it. We're, <laughs> we're just here to enjoy them. Yeah, like we're just crazy and <laughs> watching them. <laughs> so they are really impressive machines and modes of uh, transportation. So they and- really truly are. And being down in southern Florida, they just created this really crazy fast train that makes three stops. And I believe it's. West Palm, Fort Lauderdale, and Miami. Oh, wow. And it's the super fast speedway train. And we actually saw it go by one day, and it was insane. Yeah, they had those when we lived in Japan. I don't know. Well, I don't know if it's the exact same one, but they have a yeah. super train or something like that there that they're pretty fast. Yeah, it cuts the train time down by like a half hour or something like that. So crazy. I know, I know. Um, All right, so let's, I'm honestly just really excited and ready to dive in to this. Me too, the um, murderino in me is super excited about this. So um, I, I picked this book and... This is I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McManera, McNamara. Sorry, I screwed that up the first time. Oh, I say McNamara. McNamara? <laughs> McNamara is how I say it. Okay, so maybe I didn't mess it up. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm going to go ahead and read the synopsis really quickly. Um, For more than 10 years, a mysterious and violent predator committed 50 sexual assaults in Northern California before moving south, where he perpetrated 10 sadistic murders. Then he disappeared, eluding capture by multiple police forces and some of the best detectives in the area. Three decades later, Michelle McNamara, a true crime journalist who created the popular website TrueCrimeDiary.com, was determined to find the violent psychopath she called the Golden State Killer. Michelle poured over police reports, interviewed victims, and embedded herself in the online communities that were as obsessed with the case as she was. I'll Be Gone in the Dark, the masterpiece McNamara was writing at the time of her sudden death, offers an atmospheric snapshot of a moment in American history and a chilling account of a criminal mastermind and the wreckage he left behind. It is also a portrait of a woman's obsession and her unflagging pursuit of the truth. Utterly original and compelling, it has been hailed as a modern true crime classic, one which fulfilled Michelle's dream, helping unmask the Golden State Killer. So I picked this book because I like true crime. I've always kind of been somebody that's been drawn to, like, the whodunits. My husband, he thinks I'm weird because I like to watch all the, <laughs> the, the, the like, ID channel. Mm-hmm. Um, 
shows. And at one time he even said, he's like, why do you like watching this stuff? Are you trying to figure out how to murder me or something like that? <laughs> and I can like, see no. your husband saying that. I'm like, no, it's not that. It's just, it intrigues me. And um, it's the, you know, just figuring it out if you can. It's not because I I like people getting killed. I like the, I guess the the unknown and the the puzzle of it. It's always been something I've, I've liked that it was a puzzle. Yeah. And it, it came out in February and... It was on my to-read list, and then we did, when we finally figured out what we were going to do for our podcast, I was like, we're going to read this book, and we're going to talk about it, because um, I just, it was something I wanted to, to read, and I wanted to talk about with somebody. Yeah, I definitely purchased this book almost immediately after it came out, and I purchased it through my Kindle, and it had just been sitting on my Kindle for a while. There was one point this summer that I tried to read it. I couldn't I couldn't get into it really easily. I just had a lot going on, and my summer was really crazy. So when you suggested it, I was really excited because I thought, finally, I get to read the book. Um, I'm with you, though. I have always really loved the true crime of stuff. It's hard to say when it started, but we definitely would watch Dateline, and we always watched Unsolved Mysteries. Unsolved Mysteries, yeah. Yeah, we always did all of that stuff growing up. But for me, it's not so much. Some of it's the puzzle of everything for me. It's not it's not about the murder, it's not about the crime or whatever. It's honestly about just knowing that other side of life. Right. I've if it I've kind of always been that curious mind where if people tell you go right, I will ask <sighs> a million questions about going right and then I'll want to know what's left. Right. Why do we have to go right? What's on the left? I always I always want to know the other side of things. Right. So it definitely intrigues me in a thought of why these people kind of operate the way that they do. Right. And just kind of knowing the underbelly of society. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I totally get it. And, you know, like you brought something up. I kind of remember what made me interested in this sort of thing and I would call it our hometown or my hometown Casper's um kind of hometown murder and for the longest time it was a cold case murder and that was um the Lil Miss murder of um and those of you that don't know the case that is the Lisa Marie Kimmel murder that happened in um 88 so I was really I mean we were just we were still kids and I yeah, I, I, I know the bridge that she was found at um you know we used to drive out to it all the time when we went out to Alcova um th- there's just things about it and it was on Unsolved Mysteries it's just it, it, it like it was just a, a really big part of 
what Casper was for our longest time. And, you know, eventually they did catch her murderer. But it was just one of those things was that that's the one that's always kind of stuck with me. That's my like hometown murder that kind of pulled me into this different dark world. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to think of the hometown murder that would have really done it for me. And I, even, even being 30 minutes away from you, I don't really remember that because we didn't get a lot of local news because we couldn't even get a lot of channels. I grew up in the country. (laughs) Well, it was Wyoming in the eighties. Yeah. (laughs) I, I, yeah, I just was always fascinated with just that other side of everything. So I have to say, I do, I do want to say just for anybody listening, we aren't going to go into a lot of details about anything. One, because we only have the details that the book gave. And I feel like Michelle McNamara did a really fantastic job of putting information into the book that was really necessary with and being graphic without being overly graphic in any way but we are going to be talking about a lot of things that could possibly trigger some stuff yeah definitely in in your life um or in your past or in your own anxieties so I do just want to put that out there this is definitely not a um, light story. No, it's not. Um, it's really heavy. I just, I just really wanted to say that for everybody. So there's not any surprises for anybody with anything that's going to be discussed. Right. I have to say, my initial impression of this book. I was honestly blown away with her writing in this book. She's amazing. She was an amazing author. And what really stuck with me is her fluidity of how she was able to go from cold, hard facts to a personal story where you are seriously reading something so crazy that somebody did to these human beings unsuspecting. And then she would just kind of go into this funny story about how her husband gave her this incredible anniversary gift. Yeah. And her ending line of that chapter was, I and forgot to I've get been him so something. busy, I forgot to get him something. <laughs> um, yeah. Even, honestly, what really stuck out to me, and it's not the first stuff that comes up in the book. It's not the first chapter that comes up in the book. It's a couple chapters in. But um, her story of the first crime that really got her kind of juices for true crime flowing and it was when the girl on her same block the young woman on her same block got murdered yeah and she ended up 
knowing somebody who saw the the killer and it was not really and found the body found the body with his brother just or his cousin his cousin his brother yeah maybe brother might have been there it was it was so it was it was a catholic neighborhood like irish catholic neighborhood and like this there are these boys, a group of boys that were walking down an alley and they ended up finding her body shortly after the, the crime took place. And it was like cousins and maybe some siblings. I don't remember all the details on who, the who's, but this family had like, I think third, it was like two sets. It, of, there was cousins like 13, and aunts and uncles like 13 and people living in a house. But it's, I, it was outside of Chicago in one of the suburbs. I know exactly what kind of house it was. It was like a free, a three flat house where it's three distinct apartments all on one house. Um, she, she was writing or while reading this and in her writing, I could picture that neighborhood so perfectly, even though it's not in the city, I could just picture it so perfectly because I knew. So it was, I just, the whole time I just devoured this book. Right. I, and it's not because of the crime. It was honestly just her writing. Uh It just made me want to read more. And it was so compassionate, so informative it was strung together so yeah it was so personal it was strung together so so nicely and not to really jump ahead but when I did get to the end it besides the fact that you finish the chapter and it states she had passed away on this date the next chapter is so abruptly not her writing style totally different until you get to her notes like when they like the, yeah. the bullet point notes I'm like oh there she is yes um, yeah but, even her bullet pointed notes yeah. there I mean there's there was nothing wrong with mm-hmm. how they wrote it well they I were thought, very technical yeah I was like I, okay I don't need to know how the program works <laughs> Right. That was They're totally really technical, great. but I can only imagine that they saw her notes in her computer or like on her hard drive. I'm sure they saw the boxes and boxes of evidence stacked mm-hmm. everywhere. I imagine her notes probably looked even more frantic than my notes. And I have mm-hmm. notebooks of notes everywhere that they probably just were trying to string things together and they were like, we can't write like her. They even said that they were like, yeah. we cannot compare to her writing. They tried. They said so, we tried and we can't do it. Yeah. So I think they just went on the other side of it and they were like, okay, she could have gone into all of this stuff. We can't do it. She had these whole theories and these like, there was one thing, uh, there was like a chapter where they were talking about how she wrote um, about like the Google Maps and the differences of uh, the city. <laughs> she now. had one, yeah. And she had been working on some like this theory that she was writing about and they didn't even include it. And I would have loved to read that yeah. 
just to see how she wrote it and how her mind thought about it, especially since by that point she had already connected with Paul Holes mm-hmm. and they had already been working together a lot right. that I would have loved to read it, but I'm sure they just saw all these notes and they were like, okay, where do we even start? One, mm-hmm. two, we already know we can't write like her. So what are we going to give the people? We're just going to give them the facts. We're just going to give them cold, hard facts of what we need to do. And we're just going to pull her writing how we can. Um, And and, I mean, they did what they did and it, it worked. It worked with what they had to do, you know, and they couldn't, there's nothing they could have done different. I don't think. Absolutely. I don't think they could have. And honestly, I felt like how they ended it, because they were a little bit more technical, they were a little bit more um, statistical. I honestly didn't really mind it at the end when I read everything, because it it just was one of those things where this was the emotion of it. This is Mm -hmm. why this case sticks with people. Right. This is why you have detectives who worked on the very first case of this person and why it has stuck with them for 30, 40 years. And then it was like, and this is the reason why, because this is what the facts are. And this is where we're at. And this is what we want to go with it. Right. So it was really fun. And I'm not going to lie, because I didn't read it right away when it came out, we did read it with the pleasure of knowing that they caught the Golden State Killer. Mm-hmm. Just so, a few months after the book came out. Yeah, just a few months after the book came out. Um, so we did have that kind of satisfaction of an ending yeah. where as I was reading this, if I... They wouldn't have caught him. I think this book would have affected me a lot different. Right. I think it would have been, I mean, it's already a really heavy book, but I think. There's an ending. Like, you know, there's an ending. Yeah. There's an ending. There's an outcome. You, like myself as the reader, I had the satisfaction knowing that when they were like, And he still was, like, they couldn't find him. I found myself about halfway through the book being like, no, but you did find him. You got him, yeah. Especially when it came to when Paul Holes entered the story. Yeah. Because he would talk about his disappointment. And Michelle McNamara would write about how they would bring each other suspects or evidence and they would get so excited and then nothing would pan out and they had so much disappointment. And there was just that little like gleaming hope of no, but you did get him. You were on the right path. It just took a while, maybe a little longer than we all wanted it, but it took a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm with you like this book. I, I really loved her writing. Um, I loved how, she was able to incorporate her, her like kind of personal life or side to this. It made mm-hmm. it, it made it more human. I yeah. think. I know a lot of people love um, Capote's uh, intru- um, 
In cold blood. In cold blood. I'm like in true blood and I'm like, that's not even right. I'm like putting true blood and in cold blood together. Um, but um, I, I read his book and I enjoyed it, but he was a lot more, um, I don't know. It wasn't as fluid, I, I think. I Because or... I've read In Cold Blood as well. I have not watched the movie, but I have read the book. I actually read the book on suggestion of you. I think you were the one who gave it to me. Probably. But um, the only word that really comes to mind with how he wrote his story is that it's a lot more crass. Yes. Like, it's just... Like you said, fluidity, it's a lot harsher. It's a lot more like mm-hmm. this is just what it was. Right. And I would almost, not to really go there, but I would almost say that it's kind of that that flip side of that feminine touch and that masculine touch mm-hmm. of just an out view. I mean, I think it also, you have to look at, the, the, the time, time period the time too. periods when they wrote the books for totally. sure if for sure. if we're gonna if we're gonna compare these you know um michelle was writing this four or five years ago yeah she started a while ago i yeah. mean she was i mean i know she was doing stuff for but yeah like in 2000 like 10 years yeah like in 2012 she she 2012 had or 13 she well, and she, I think it was 2012 or 2013. She went up and um had that like day with Paul Holes where they yeah. drove all over, which well, from, and she had articles that she had been yeah. reading, she or writing. She had her blog she had been yeah. writing. So she had she stuff. has been writing about this case for at least ten years. Yeah. So I mean, even then, you think about it, 2008. And In Cold Blood was written in, what, the 60s or something like that? So, I mean, there was yeah. there was quite a bit of time in between it. But, yeah, I could I can definitely see that, that difference. Yeah. But, yeah, I really, I loved it. I kind of ate it up. I, when she had her section about her family and her mom like Mm -hmm. I totally I'm like I get you girl (laughs) about her mom like I love my mom and everything but sometimes we have our misunderstandings or or whatever (laughs) and I I I totally was like all right I I I know I'm not alone in this world (laughs) yeah I feel like we've talked about this before I did connect with that story a lot mostly because I started probably the last I feel like it was the last like three or four years I've been spending a lot more time with my parents than I had been able to spend since I'd moved to Chicago right um just because of their schedules my schedule and we've been able to spend a lot of one-on-one time with each other Mm -hmm. um, where my parents would come visit me or I would go visit them wherever they were at and it kind of brought back all of these memories of things that I said or did to them as a child 
And there's this always this one moment that I replay with my father at my very first baseball game that we went to as a huge family in Seattle. And I was probably 10. And I was being that bratty 10-year-old. And my dad tried doing something really nice for me. And I kind of threw this fit. And I was like, no, I want this instead. He bought me this baseball that had a bunch of, like, the Mariners, like, stamp signatures and stuff on it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, I want this baseball because I just thought that I could go get autographs because I just was 10 and had no idea that like where we were sitting compared to where the players were or whatever and I didn't say that to my dad I just remember throwing this fit and my dad just I just remember the look on his face where he just was kind of defeated and he just got up and went and bought me the baseball that I wanted And I think about that moment and, like, moments like that where I wonder what I would – I know I would beat myself up if those were the last moments I had had with them or, like, those were the last impressions that I had with them. Yeah. Well, there's even that – well, there's even that one – that one family that the daughter, she had run away a few times. Yeah. And um, Sherry, she, Sherry Domingo. she called her mom and was like, I'm coming to get my swimming suit. <laughs> and her mom yeah. was finally like, you're not coming home. No, I'm tired of your crap. Mm-hmm. And I I think the daughter, I think her daughter's name was Debbie, right? Um, um, yeah. And she, she basically is like, I hate you. I don't love you. And hung up the phone, and those were the last things she said to her mom. And um, the next morning, she got a phone call from her mom's best friend slash neighbor, and she's like, you need to come home. And she found out that her mom was gone. Yeah. You know, like, really puts it in perspective that sometimes – and I know we say stuff in in the heat of the moment, but – but, but I did think about that, like that story with the story of her mother and then just friends, family, whatever. But then to even add on to that story, so not only did she lose her mother and have that as her lasting impression, she then, uh, how old was she when that all of that happened? She was a teenager. And then yeah, she, she was like seven. 16? 16? 16? I don't 16, think she was 17. 16. I think she was 16. I think she, yeah, I feel like she would have had to have been 16 at the oldest. She then had ended up having no relationship with her extended family. Yeah. Like, she didn't get, she didn't have a relationship with her grandmother. She didn't get to have a relationship with her aunt. So. Well, they kind of just, the aunt and the grandma just kind of. They didn't care about her. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it, it, it was a weird family dynamic anyways, I think. Yeah. But, you know, and she tried. Like, she tried years and years later to. Connect. and To connect. Like, and they were still like, nah. And so, I mean, I, I can see that, you know. Yeah. The connection think... she had to her mom was really broken because, like, they didn't even want to have anything to do anything with her. 
earth. Exactly. And I think that's kind of where Michelle McNamara wrote so well because she she wrote with so much compassion Mm -hmm. that when you talk or when she spoke about the family, the surviving family members, you didn't have to know a lot about them. Right. But they stuck with you. Mm -hmm. I felt the same way about the father who, it was one of the first couples that had actually been murdered. Yeah. Harrington, right? The the father walked in on them and actually found the, the bodies. And I mean, he was so close with his daughter-in-law and his son that he gave them his condo. Yeah. And, and he was like over every weekend to help them do stuff. Yeah. He was helping them fix it up. They had weekly dinners. They were extremely close. Very close. And even though that's all you hear about him, you could just feel all the love but that he, he had for his right. family well, or his and son and daughter-in-law. So true. Well, and because of him um, and when DNA, so that that ha- that murder happened, what, like late, se- late 70s? Yeah. Um, he, well, DNA kind of came noticed in 84, but it wasn't until like 96, 97 that they started testing all the, um, these old cases, but because Mm -hmm. of the Harrington family, the father and the brother, basically the DNA system that is in California right now is all because of what one, the golden state killer crimes and Mm -hmm. two, because the passion of this, this family, the Harrington family, um, how they, they really pushed for, you know, like there to be this system that all, if there's any DNA, it goes into it. So we can maybe Mm -hmm. find matches. And then like, even Michelle talked about it in the, in the book about how, they don't the like the other jurisdictions they didn't like in the seventies they didn't like talking to each other. And then twenty years later in the nineties mm-hmm. they they were a little better about it, but they still didn't like to do it. They didn't like it and you even had that one sheriff's office that flat out refused to believe they even had any of the mm-hmm the same cases that they weren't even linked right and right. so it was just flat out refusal right they just said nope we that does not fit our mo we don't think it's the same guy he, there's no way he could have attacked ours our town try the town down the road <laughs> yeah basically um they might have one uh yeah it's and he the um the the killer he or rapist he started out well at first he started out as a uh a, just a burglar burglary like they yeah, called him the a ransacker the, the, the Vilsala ransacker mm-hmm. was his first 
like moniker and then then which they weren't even fully convinced it was Mm -hmm. the same person they thought that that possibly was somebody else yeah and then he then he when he did up his game well first he tried kidnapping a girl and that did not (laughs) did not go over well but he ended up that was his first murder too was um he didn't kill the girl but he killed her father when he the father was trying to save the girl um yeah totally by accident and then he then he went on to raping and like he did like 50 rapes in like a two-year period or or something like that. well i think he well he did um i actually wrote this down he he did over 55 rapes that they Mm -hmm. know of right in the 10 years but in the first couple years they had two a month i think it was like from october to that following may mm-hmm. um i think it was between 75 and 76 or 76 and 77 it was like an october to may thing he had done two a month and so the town was increasing a bunch of intelligence and then they were realizing that he had mis- military-like maneuvers and the first it was kind of one of the first times that they thought he could have possibly been a cop or some type of background like that yeah well and he was always like a step ahead of them they were like how does he know and it was because he he was a cop and he probably heard the chatter even though he wasn't really doing it in his well I don't was he doing it in his where he was a cop um, I'm not 100% on the I timeline. Well, and I haven't really researched it that much just because, and you and I talked about this before we started recording, but I mean, there's some info out on him, but they're, they really have not put out or they haven't gotten a lot of info right? Um, about like what he was like or, you know, like we know that he, the we know his name and we we know that he did get married and he has three children and he got cop shoplifting at a a store and he got fired from being a cop and then after that he mm-hmm. at some point for 27 years he worked um in like a grocery store warehouse somewhere i i can't remember the name of the company but but like there there's info but it's not like a lot of info about him right now and so it's hard to like piecemeal where everything is and that's the other thing like I really I'm like when I started this book and when I finished it I was like I needed a map so I could visually like put dots like I just needed a chart and a map or something and so (laughs) when I got when I got to the, the third section where the 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 two men kind of took over after she passed away where they, and they had, show all the they maps. had well they have yeah. some like but it wasn't it wasn't like what I needed like it helped yeah. but it didn't help me enough but I was like whoa I totally needed to be writing like down the dates and the locations um just because I wanted to like visually see it yeah and uh others 
for a while we lived in um central california so like we lived in monterey for a while which uh is the bay area we were two hours away from san francisco san jose was an hour and a half santa cruz was an hour north of us so a lot of times when um like not necessarily the little communities that they talked about but when they talked about san jose i'm like oh i i know that i know that but i can guarantee you i probably drove by some of those um communities when we went up to san francisco or san jose oh, yeah so it was and like they even and sometimes they talked about oh well he's going down the the interstate so his his next stop is going to be monterey or santa cruz so for me like it really kind of hit me like how how close everything was and sacramento was i think three three and a half hours away so it's a bit farther um, mm-hmm. from us, but um, yeah, I mean, my parents just went to Sa- San uh, Sacramento this past spring or summer, early summer. So it was just really funny to <laughs> kind of think about my parents' trip and what they did and how just easy it was. And I'm reading all this stuff and. the same the same area definitely I think the thing for me that really stuck out was how paralyzing he made these communities terrified him they had one of the victims before he once he moved to the couples um one of the first husbands, I can't remember. They, I mean, all of the all of the names in there of the victims were pseudonyms, and mm-hmm. unless they were the victims that were killed, right? So I don't really know if this is his real name, but in the book they called him Philip, mm-hmm. and I was so taken back by how Philip. And all the other husbands just started searching the streets from 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. every single night. Yeah. They would just do what they had to do during the day, sleep when they could. And then for three hours every single night, they just searched for blocks and blocks and blocks, scanning for him. But then it was so much more... So he was the night stalker because of all of his peeping and everything. Some of the rapes were building up. But then Richard Ramirez came out and they called him the night stalker. So this guy became the original night stalker. Right. Which gets kind of confusing because now you're like night stalker, original night stalker. But Uh then he you were just talking about like the East area and then he became the East area rapist, which then gets really confusing because now his acronym is O N S E A R and they were hyphenated. Right. And which I think is why uh, Michelle McNamara created the monkeyer golden state killer. It just makes it easier. He was kind of all over the state. Yeah, he was. But, um, but I think it is important to to really drive home how 
paralyzed these communities were because of him because they didn't know when it was going to happen they didn't know if it was over yet he would leave an area for eight months to a year and then all of a sudden he would come back and sometimes he would hit like within a day or two of yeah the last there was like one point, wasn't there one day where he did twenty two hours? It was yeah, it was a double a double attack mm-hmm. and they were a house away from each other. I think there was one house in between them. Yeah. And um I mean it just went really crazy. So I do wanna read this little this little paragraph from the book. Um, By May 16th, a surge of newly installed floodlights lit up the east side like a Christmas tree. In one house, tambourines were tied to every door and window. Hammers went under pillows. Nearly 3,000 guns were sold in Sacramento, Sacramento County between January and May. Many people refused to sleep between 1 and 4 a.m. Some couples slept in shifts one of them always stationed on the living room couch, a rifle pointed at the window. Only a madman would strike again. These people lived in so much fear. But then at the same time, they took so much into their own hands. The husbands created that watch. Um, You have the couples who did a, a bunch of their own stuff to kind of, make their own security. Mm -hmm. Uh, He would just make this little slit in the window screen, unlock the door or unlock the window, get in. And then he just appeared out of nowhere. Well, let, but let's touch on that. Most of the time he's been already stalking these folks before he even, attacks them oh yeah because he's he knows their routines he knows the layout of their house he knows if they have children or not and like sometimes the children have seen him sometimes they don't sometimes he just keeps the door like shut if the door is shut and he tells them never harmed the children he's he's never harmed the children um he never harmed any of the animals yeah, well, except for that dog, that one situation with the dog that that yeah. him, which was a really weird situation. But, but like, what I can't remember which case it was, but he had, and and he would hide in the house. Like he could have been in the house for hours before he even attacked. Yeah. Um. Because in one instance, the 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 husband had a a pistol like on the nightstand or under the pillow. I am not, but it was nearby and he grabbed it, grabbed the pistol and golden state killer goes something to the effect of like, you're going to need these. And he's holding the bullets in his hand. He had been in the house while they were gone and already taken the bullets out. Yeah. Of the weapon. And in a lot of the cases, people reported, or noticed a, a random garden tool missing, mm-hmm. footprints around somewhere of their house, yeah, um, water running, or right. something random that happened in their house that most people, when you go to every day, like from day-to-day life, if you're looking for a garden tool, you might have been like, oh, I thought I left it here, 
oh, I must have put it away or moved it. Right. Or maybe my wife moved it or maybe my husband moved it and I just didn't even know. It's, yeah, he would stalk these people. You really, we don't know how long he stalked these people, but there he stalked them long enough that animals were used to him. Mm-hmm. Or he was feeding them. Like. Or he was feeding them. But very rarely did a dog ever bark. Right. Ever. Ever. In the neighborhood. So he would stalk these neighborhoods. They. They. It, I mean, it was just so nuts. The thing about him that makes him, in my eyes, almost so much worse than some of the other serial killers that we know a lot about is his amount of patience. Besides the stalking, it's not even that. His patience with his victims. Mm -hmm. You, it was case after case where they would let out a breath. They would be holding their breath for an hour. Right. And they would let out a deep breath and he would just move and let you know that he was there. Yeah. He wouldn't even necessarily say anything. Sometimes he would just breathe. Right. And you knew he was still there. He would linger. He just lingered to terrify he these people. loved that. Mm-hmm. And it's, so unsettling and at the same time so comforting to know that he didn't do anything with the children and that oftentimes he locked them like he kept their bedroom door shut yeah. there were a but, few instances where then you have he the brought them little, into the room like the the three-year-old the boy the little boy then, with the single mom and yeah. he's like mommy is the doctor gone right and it's it's this stuff that makes me like want to know about his life yeah. because a lot of the people reported some of his actions a lot of the women mm-hmm. reported his actions and things that he would say where he would use almost mm-hmm. a different voice he was muttering mommy there was one point where he said the name Bonnie yeah and Bonnie I I know you haven't done any research but by is actually that name is also one of the things that helped um pinpoint who the actual killer was or the actual suspect was he had a fiance at one point named bonnie which is what before they solved who it was they had guessed that it was somebody important Somebody important in his life, a girlfriend, a fiance, a a spouse, possibly like a spouse or a sister or a parent or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so Bonnie was an important like kind of person. The reason, yeah, the reason why there was something why he hid the children away, except for the the boy and like I think there was a daughter or something. There, well, there was a ten-year-old that. A 10-year-old boy that got put in a parent's bathroom, like master bathroom, during one of the raids. He moved them because they came in or something. Something or woke up or whatever. But, um, but yeah, there 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 were a few other, there were a couple instances with children where he, like, they saw something or something happened to them. But it makes me wonder, like, why those children, like, the boy with the single mom, Mm -hmm. I feel like, 
there has to be, and I could totally be wrong, but I just feel like knowing what we know about the childhoods of other like Ted and Ted Ted Bundy, Ramirez, Ramirez, John Wayne Gacy, all of the, like, I mean, they all have some, there was, there was just some serial killer I listened about in England in the 20s and 30s and you even know about his childhood right and the stuff that happened to him and how it directly related to his crimes as an adult and how he did it and what he did and how those connections were there so it just makes me wonder a little bit more which I do want to do a lot more research on him which I know you told me I kind of went down the rabbit hole um I and there will is not there. much of it <laughs> I know I think, and I think once, rabbit hole there is. I think once, I, I definitely um, want to get there I just haven't yeah. been able to yet well and I I and I that's why I, I'm like I was like there has to be something about like before he was a cop because like basically all I have been able to find was like he was a cop, or a, a little bit about like where he was. He was born in New York. They moved to California at some point, and he graduated from Folsom High School in um, California. And then, you know, they talk about where he went to school and when he, he um, went to cop training and when he became a cop. And then when he got fired as a cop, and then when he started working or for. Did they say when you started working for the grocery company? I can't remember if they gave us a year. I can't remember if I read a year about it or if they gave us, um, or if it was just like, he worked for this company for 27 years. Yeah. Um, But like, that's all the info. Like it does. I I have not been able to find much like about his like family. Did he have siblings? Did he, did he, you know, what, what was that? Um, Yeah. What made him who he became? And the thing was, is, like, this man, like, they they thought, like, he's going to be in their notes. He's going to be in all the detective's notes. Because sometimes that happens. Like, there's always somebody they come across. Mm-hmm. And it co- ends up that, like, he was not on their radar at all. His name was not on the radar at yeah. all. And so this guy, um, if it wasn't for DNA and for 23andMe and um, Ancestry.com and their genetic testing that they do now, this man may have never been But it wasn't even those companies because they have clauses. It was a random company. Yes, I know what you're saying. Like the databases that they're building. Absolutely. Which is so funny to me because knowing how they did end up finding him having that knowledge already when you get to that part in the book where they they knew it too Paul Holes Michelle McNamara Mm -hmm. they knew it they had been talking to 23andMe they had been talking to Ancestry they've been talking to all these companies saying CODIS was not enough. We have to tap into these other DNA. This is going to be the one and only key for why we find this. And the limited DNA that they did have with the other companies that did allow 
them to kind of tap in that didn't have those privacy clauses. They were running DNA weekly right, with these companies just to see if they could find something. Yeah. Um, I mean, Michelle McNamara put in without officially putting in his DNA because she couldn't have his physical spit to send he in. Needed saliva she she, she was the markers. Sending, yeah, she was putting in the markers and was like, I found these list of people, you know. Which I had no idea that you could even put in the mark markers. I, I was yeah, like, I'm oh here. that's but I'll tell you something. When um I remember when I was in high school, I was a sophomore and so it's like 96, 97. And my biology class, we did um, some genetic, like we had the markers and then we had to like line them up or whatever. And that was like one of our things. And like, I loved it. It was, it was, it was a puzzle to me. I loved it. And mm-hmm. uh, there for, for about a year, I was like, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to like become like a biologist or or whatever it was you had to do, um, genetic biologist, whatever it was mm-hmm. to, to be able to do this. And like, so I don't know if I, at the time, I'm, I don't remember if I was like, I'm going to go solve crimes or if I'm just gonna, <laughs> because like the thing was, is like, we knew it was helping with crimes, but it wasn't like what it is today. Right. And, um, but I, I, and the thing was, is my teacher was even like, uh, you're really good at this because like half <laughs> the class couldn't like see like the connections or whatever and here I am like oh I got them all you know <laughs> um, right I really and I really enjoyed it but um I apparently theater and dance took over like a year or two later <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah and that dream I, went away <laughs> just just the ancestry side of it intrigues me and how DNA works and how it's all connected. And even siblings have as much of their DNA is the same. It's, you know, completely different. You can have different right. percentages of lineage yeah. in your, in your DNA makeup, even though you're blood siblings. So I, I find all of it extremely it's very intriguing, intriguing and, and exciting but it's funny to me because I know that DNA is new, mm-hmm. but then at the same time, I think about it. And because of when we started hearing everything and you hear like all of the big trials and stuff that was happening in the 90s or, you know, even right. in the 2000s, it's all DNA, 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 DNA. So it's kind of hard to think of a time that DNA wasn't involved right. in in stuff. So when you get um when you get to read about that connection, right. that satisfaction that that detective who just had this gut feeling that these two cases that looked completely unrelated were related mm-hmm. because of that random link that the one who was the one she works in the lab Mary Mary when she gets to call him and he hears they're connected 
And it's just that sense of validation where your instinct as a detective and as a cop and as somebody who likes to find, like, figure out puzzles was right, proven scientifically. Right. It's just got to be so satisfying because it was satisfying to about. Yeah. So it has to be satisfying to. Oh, I bet it was like. Feel. I would imagine it was more than satisfying. It was probably like, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to say exactly that feeling. Um, like you were, you were there. You're on the right track. Well, yeah. and Michelle, at one point, I can't remember which detective she had been talking to. I don't think it was Holes. I think it was um, Pool. Pool. But it might have been one of the older ones. Oh no, I think it was one of the older ones. And oh, it was one of the older ones because he had come back out of retirement. And he and this other older detective had this back room full of, like, all everything. And he, and she was talking with him, and he said mm-hmm. something, like, and she, because she was starting to feel like she was maybe, like, the Golden State Killer, obsessive and a little crazy. Mm-hmm. Because she was, you know, kind of stalking him. And he stalked his his victims and so she was starting to feel that and then she went and saw, met went and visited these two detectives and she she's she sees this room of everything they have and she's like oh well they're not so different from me and then the detective said something like it's a puzzle and she's like like and that that was like total justification for her um Mm -hmm. and and I talked about that earlier like for me that was always something that really intrigued me I always liked the whodunits the the datelines specials Mm -hmm. um I always liked to watch them and like I like to figure out if somebody did do it or didn't do it and the thing was is there's this one dateline and I think it was probably 48 hours too but I I don't remember the the name of the people, but it was this young boy, like 18, maybe 19. He was a college student. He gets accused of killing like a local, a local man who was like a, I want to say he was like a a broadcaster or or something like that. His buddy that he was with, or maybe a a friend or somebody that was like an acquaintance ends up saying that, yeah, he and I did it or blah, blah, blah. And the, the kid was like, I didn't do this. I didn't do this. And I'm like, that kid didn't do it. But he gets convicted and he he's, he's sent to jail. I think he's in jail. Like he had been in jail five to, to 10 years and um, new evidence comes out and ends up, they find the original killer. And I'm like, I knew it. Like I just never, mm-hmm. and the thing was, was like, even that, that Dateline special was, while they tried to make it seem like they were partial at the end, the the kid got convicted, and I'm like, no, it it wasn't there, but he got convicted. But now he's out and he's free. But you know, to have your a good part of your your twenties taken away from you, and have that happen to you, I would imagine is uh, very difficult, and you probably wouldn't have faith in the system and maybe he does have faith in the system I haven't gone up and read on him read up on him again but he got out yeah and I just remember like I called it when I first saw it I'm like he it's not him 
Right. I mean, I think it just goes down to how there's always there's always an instinct and everybody has that instinct, whether mm-hmm. you choose to follow it or accept it or ignore it. It's there. And I think, I mean, you read how Michelle had that and then you read how Paul Holes had that. And a lot of these detectives had that instinct, you know, the the detective knowing for a fact that these two cases had to be connected. It was that instinct, that driving force. And it's it's funny because you, you keep talking about, like, the science side of everything and the DNA. And I just kind of feel like my my mind track and everything is on the psychological side of it, of the why and... Yeah what reason and it kind of thinking of all the towns that he he did go into and the communities that he disrupted I found it so interesting that Goleta only had I think two or three attacks it was only a couple yeah it didn't have a lot and none of the attacks were sexual there was no sexual assaults. So it makes me want, it's, it's one of those things where like the psychological side of it is why no sexual assaults in this town? Mm-hmm. What made this town have to be a part of it, but not in the same way as the other, the other places. There was right. still attacks. There was still things that were happening, but why not why the other it? side of it right. that was clearly a methodical part of all of this to him? It was about that. Right. It was about, like, I personally, reading the book, being in true crime as much as I wanted to be, or as much as I wanted to be, as much as I am, I'd want to be, it's the, the thought of, I don't necessarily think the killing was the means. Like, it it was like the end of something. Like, it's there was just an escalation where it got there. I don't think that's what the driving force was. Because I think it would have happened a lot more. And I don't think there would have been the number of, like, rapes that there were and sexual assaults that there were. The stalking, all of that stuff. I don't think... I like I wonder and unless he talks you'll never know I wonder what drove him in those attacks yeah to murder them well something would have had something would have had to go wrong in his mythology of of how things needed to go down yeah well and they even talked about methodology not methodology methodology Um, they even talked about that one um like the last rape where it was the turning point. Um, and even the, and I think that's the one where the, he was almost caught by the neighbor that was an FBI agent. I think that was the yeah. last rape before he started murdering people. Um, yeah, but there was something have, about it, that. That was, that was the turning point. And like, even the detectives knew it. There were some yeah. things that he did and said at that crime that they're like, this is going to change from here on out. And it 
yeah. did. And the other thing is, is like this man was like, how many times did he almost get caught? So oh many my times. God. This man was incredibly lucky. Like, well, like there are times that he did not get caught, but so many times that like the FBI agent, the um, random cop that was the, nearby, the, random the neighbors. Cop. And the neighbor's the boyfriend, the boyfriend that he wasn't supposed to be over there that night. Mm-hmm. There was a change in plans. His girlfriend, I think, just randomly, like she had a change in her schedule. Something, so yeah. he was sitting, he was sitting out waiting in front. Out. He wasn't supposed to be there waiting for her. And he saw he saw the guy, and then he saw the guy army crawling on the lawn. And how many times did people actually just see him peeping? Right. You know? Um, I mean, there had to have been countless. But honestly, like, the thing about him is everybody had him within two or three inches of each other, of, like, accounts. 5'9 to 5'11. Right. His weight was always about like 150-ish. Yeah, 150. I think there was one point he was like up to 180. Hair changed but from brown to blonde to shaggy to, to short. short. Which I mean, I can look back at a hair like haircuts I had a year ago, and it's completely different than what my right. hair looks like now. And you also you also have to think like going in the 70s, the 80s, like what style, what's, you know, what's happening. Was he trying to be on the police force at that point? Was he working in a warehouse at that point? Yeah. But there was always certain things that were the same. Muscular calves. Baby face. Baby face. High pitched voice. voice. The voice was the same. His incredibly small penis was always the same. So small. So it's just so funny that the things that they knew for sure and the things that were kind of speculated or the the what ifs were still so similar. And it's kind of one of those things where you get these descriptions that could be anybody. I could name like five people right now who probably fit that description. So he was unassuming and he, even if he was off a little bit, like you were telling me about the neighbors where that the few people that have come out were just like, yeah, he was really volatile, you know, but then like like, the couple, there was something unassuming about him because he knew layouts of houses. So he would walk in the neighborhoods he went Where, to maybe open houses they, for yeah, um, realty, like, realtors. Yeah, he had to have been to open houses. And Michelle even says in the book, he would have been the guy who didn't ask any questions. He would mm-hmm. kind of blend in. You would almost forget that he was there because that was his thing. He was patient. He could step back and remove himself and only be known when he was ready to be known. Yep. So he was a wallflower to the 10th power. Mm-hmm. And think about how many people had day-to-day interactions with him that probably didn't even know in the neighborhoods that he was attacking. Right. Because he would have had to have been there figuring all of this stuff out. Mm-hmm. Random phone calls. I mean, this is a time where... 
they don't have cell phones. Right. Everything is landline. So he had to know and have a place to call these people and do things. So it's just so interesting to me, like how everything just kind of came out. Yeah. And speaking of also getting caught, he knew, I think the only thing that stopped him from doing anything else, because you have other serial killers who end up stopping for a little while. And it's Mm -hmm. usually when they have a girlfriend or they have a wife or they have a significant other that kind of comes in to the Mm -hmm. picture. I don't think that's what stopped him. I think it was strictly the DNA because he knew, he knew he had DNA everywhere. Well, there was that, but he also, but he had like a five or six year hiatus (laughs) between um, his, very last crime like yeah like 81 or whatever he was he had one and then like 86 was his last one and I do think the DNA was part of it but uh I think maybe why he didn't do anything for that that long period was he he did settle down he -hmm. did have young children that were born early 80s to um late 80s so there was that. And then I do feel like there was something about something happened in 86 that made him want to go back and try to, to be who he was. Well, something it, triggered him. I feel like, I mean, cause they were still randomly kind of like goading him a little bit in, in the news. Yeah. They were trying to get him to come out and do stuff. And so it's so funny to me because you have, like, the BTK um, killer. Mm -hmm. And he needed that recognition. He needed them to know, no, I'm here. Mm -hmm. He needed to interject himself in certain things. And the Golden State Killer, there was always the rumor of the town hall meeting and was he there? Was he not there? And well, yeah, because he um, ended up attacking one of the, the more vocal people at the town hall meeting. Right. Which I think in one of the things that I've listened to about him since then, they don't think that was directly related, is as related as they thought it was. Right. But it definitely, he definitely was like in the community. But at the same time, he didn't practice himself into everything the way a lot of other killers need that. Mm-hmm. Um, you he wasn't, know, yeah, he wasn't doing it for the notoriety. He was doing it to. I mean, we, if he, if we wouldn't have gotten this DNA connection that we did through the random ancestry website that they used, mm-hmm. they. I really think it just would have always been a mystery. Yeah. I think they would have always been searching. They would have always been been looking and always, always guessing and following that random lead. It would because be the Black Dahlia, you know, like we're trying the, to figure yeah, out. The Black Dahlia. The like, Zodiac. Black, yeah. Like the Ripper. Any of those. It would have easily gone into there because 
he wasn't that killer that needed the recognition. And Mm -hmm. if he was, he would be singing like a canary in these, in these investigations and every, and interrogations that they're, that they're holding him with. And when I was, was kind of starting to, to look up some articles that I didn't really get to get into because something happened, I do remember seeing a picture of him when they got him and how um, robust he is, how much color he has in his face. I mean, he looks really unhappy. I mean, he just, he's in a mugshot. But then I saw a photo of him at one of the trials and he's so skinny. He's so frail looking. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's just in the matter of six, six to eight months yeah. of, of what happened, you know? Yeah, I guess I'm not sure if he's still on it, but at one point as of, of I think, September, he was on Suicide Watch. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I do remember hearing that. I want to say it was in the fall. I don't think it was the spring or summer. I think it was more fall, but um, but it might. But they might have had him on Suicide Watch from... The, from the get go. Yeah, um, I do remember that. Because they don't, obviously, they want him to. They want to. I mean, they want to. Want I mean, the they have. They want to do everything. But I think more than anything, they want to know. They want to know all the questions, answers for sure. to the questions. For sure. I mean, I know I, I want to know. How do I say this? I think any serial killer or random killer like whatever attacker person Mm -hmm. like this I think there's always that question of why or why this way or why this act there's always that question but I almost feel like with him you find out the answer to one question and then it just leads to 10 more questions yeah in all of the investigations, and even now with when that they have him, I'm like, I do think that they probably are getting a lot more information out of him than what they're letting on because they're building a case. They can't release yeah, too much, for sure. Obviously, so I do think he's probably they're probably getting something out of him. They just can't share it, right? And when we do hear what it is, I will be really interested in that part of it. Yeah. Because I am a little bit, I am a lot more about the psyche of all of it. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm interested in the psyche. I'm interested in like his, his history prior to. I mean, I want to know if he has one of the three, any of the three trifectas of a serial killer. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I, it's, I just feel like it's so new. It's so fresh it's in a weird way to kind of say this. It's kind of exciting to kind mm-hmm. of see something like this unfold. Yeah. And I think it'll be interesting because a lot of people who are really into true crime, I've heard this a couple times. You just sent me the article from Vice right. yesterday, but it's the whole idea of, the term serial killer just came out in the 70s. Yeah, it's really Late, relatively new. 70s. It's a new term. And it's the whole idea that 
like what drives this there's always been this darker side of humanity Mm -hmm. history is full of it but I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about how with technology and the fact that different uh, jurisdictions actually communicate now you can type in one thing in New Mexico and it's going to pop up in New York immediately that we're catching people a lot quicker so we don't really have the serial killers that you get from the 70s and the 80s and even into the 90s I would even go as far as like the late 60s um, just because of Manson and his cult and everything but yeah um, I'd say yeah like you know there's this whole idea that because of technology being so ready at everybody's hand, you don't, we're not going to see the serial killers that you see from that time frame. And then the whole article that you sent, it's, that was actually kind of contradicting that theory, saying that he really thinks in 20 to 30 years, we are going to be getting these serial killers again because of the war on terror and the economic um, depression that we suffered in 2008, that you're going to be getting these families where fathers feel like they or mothers um, aren't around because of war. And then they are going to come back from and have issues from it and have all this PTSD and all these other issues from it. So, and then the economic slump, they're losing house. I mean, that was a huge housing epidemic where millions of people were losing houses and now they're having to move to these rundown apartments or these motels or, Mm -hmm. and you have these parents that feel like they can't provide for their family and the psychological effect that it's going to have on these children. What are they going to grow up to be because of that, this particular author is speculating that in the next 20 to 30 years we're going to see another series of big serial killers that emerge from that time period it it really is interesting because like when you do look at like ted bundy and um yeah they called it the golden age of serial killers um (laughs) which is kind of creepy but um but they called it that and but you look at all those guys and, you know, there was abuse. There was missing fathers or, you know, something happened or they had a, a stepfather, but the stepfather was abusive. Like, there, there's all sorts of things, like, with these guys. And, and it will be interesting to see what comes from this guy's theory because the Golden Age serial killers, they were born between um maybe right before world war ii definitely after you know they were baby boomers and later but you know their their fathers were were in world war ii and Mm -hmm. korea and then they may have even been in um korea themselves depending on their age and or vietnam and what we we've come a long way with our mental health of our our service members coming back from war and the PTSD 
mm-hmm. suffer. And trust me, like we still have our issues with it, but the the military is more aware and they're trying to do what they can to right. help. There's, there's still a ton of foundations and stuff like that, and it's still yeah. it's. I mean, there's still stigmas to it, and there's still, but because of like where we are as a family, I know that there are service members that really do care, and they really do want their their the 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 service members beneath them to get the help that they need. Mm-hmm. Um. So it really will be interesting to see if maybe the services that have been provided in the past, I, and I'm going to say past 10, 15 years, mm-hmm. are going to help with possibly preventing some of this theory that this this man has. Well, where they weren't really there, right? That you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Well, I mean, even to expand it for military families, I think just the stigma of mental health as a whole. For sure. Understanding it a lot more. People getting help that they need. I think just making it part of the everyday vernacular of of things that are going on in people's lives. And just needing the importance of having to talk to somebody that's not a friend or a family member who can kind of have that unbiased opinion that's just in your corner kind of rooting for you, but helping you and pushing you in the right way, you know, it makes a huge difference. And you're having more and more backgrounds and workplaces realize how important all of that is so it definitely it definitely makes a huge difference and it just makes me think where was this man in his life what was happening only thing when we were talking about the description of him the only thing that I feel was really all over the place was his age yeah Because there would be some people who said he was in his early 20s, and then there were other people, and even the detectives, who thought he was in his 30s. Yeah. So it's it's just so intriguing to me, just that side of it and how everything happened. And honestly, the thing, the thing that I really liked about this, and I do believe that Michelle McNamara had a huge driving force for this. And a lot of detectives even said this as well is you kind of get this, the stigma that cold cases once, once they kind of get past that next detective, it's new for months or a year. And then it's just forgotten. You just kind of have that, that belief of what these cold cases are because there are so many of them. There's so many of them, but they also have other, you know, cases like current right, cases absolutely. that they have to, to work or they'll go cold. Which the original detective, one of the original detectives, he was actually really upset. He got pulled from the case originally, mm-hmm. but his his boss was telling him, no, I need you on this other stuff more importantly and he went on and had a great career and did things but these cases always stuck with him 
but it was his care for the cases and then the other people who just brought it in that that stuck with him that really kept us alive. But even Paul Holes and I think it was Poole and some of the other detectives that she interviewed, they they flat out said Michelle was the driving force. For sure. If she if she wasn't intrigued by this, if she wasn't pushing it, who knows where they would have been and I mean, and she there gave was, them ideas, and yeah, they, they bounced was, ideas off of her. There was one of the detectives that um, she had a conversation with, and she even said, I wasn't expecting much out of this interview. He admitted to me later he wasn't expecting anything out of it. And then she came in with real theories and real thought behind it. Yeah. And... It was just kind of this this driving force where these detectives were glad that other people were working on it because they couldn't anymore. Right. Well, it's sometimes, you know, just having an outside person. Right. Giving you an idea that you may not have thought of. And I think and that's what it kind of came down to is these Michelle and the online sleuths. That there was a whole chat board dedicated to this man and his crimes and everything they were coming up with. Um, And and I think, you know, she kind of maybe at one point even helped bring them, bring the detectives together. I mean, they were already kind of working together, but like, yeah, because she was so likable. They're like, they said we liked her. She was a good person. Yeah. And she was fun and they're like that's not something you normally find in like a detective right I'm what was it it was oh it was Orange County Mm -hmm. gave them 30 boxes six boxes or something it was two carloads of (laughs) boxes of evidence yes that they gave her they and she even said in the book (laughs) we had to hurry and pack up before they changed their mind. Yeah. And you think about it. She was an author. She, she's, I mean, they can bring in whoever they want on the cases, but really she shouldn't have been seeing any of this information. Technically she's a journalist. So it's usually the last person, anybody in the police department want to give any information to. For sure. But here they are taking 37 or whatever, however many it is, cases of, of evidence to back to, to what her is home. Contra, Contra County and then to her house. Well, no, she took it all home. She took yeah. it all home and they scanned it. And then she distributed it between all of the... All the different counties. All to, the different to counties pay. to to get the, everybody on the same page because nobody there just wasn't a way for them to all be on the same page. Yeah. Easily. And I mean, I mean, granted in, you know, 20 something, whatever, 2013, 14, 15, whenever she did this, like it was much easier because, you know, we can scan stuff much easier and faster and, Put it on the hard drive. Yeah, yeah, it can be downloaded. It doesn't have to be print. And, yeah, yeah, so it was much easier than it was like then in 1996 when um, Pool and Holes and um, Fred Mary Ray Hall- and and 
Mary yeah. Hong were all like finally like connecting the dots between the counties, but they still yeah. had the the logistics and the legalities that they didn't want to work with each other. Not not yeah. them, but like the county part of it. So right. I mean, I I was reading the book and I made notes, and I really wished I would have written down all of the detectives that actually worked on it because I don't think she ran into a detective or even a lab worker or anybody who took this case lightly. Oh no. And didn't have it stick with them even in just like the little bit of it. So it I mean, yeah. She was definitely a driving force and even Paul Holes he was very much a driving force for the case as well. I'd say he was he was like a turning point for it in the nineties. Yeah. He he had that instinct and drive that a detective has. He wanted it, but he just happened to be the scientist in the lab. And so yep. he was kind of perfect person to really blend those two sides of it. Yeah. And get it. And they even I mean, he was in contact with Mary, I know you said it before, Hong. 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 You know, they were in contact, and it was like, when you get the equipment, call me. And when I get the equipment, I'll call you. Yeah. And they were immediately in contact with each other with with what the, with what equipment they needed right. as scientists to help help yeah. solve it. So it's... It's really the obsession. I mean, this book is I'll Be Gone in the Dark, one more, one woman's obsession with searching for the Golden State Killer. But it was her obsession fed into dedication and obsession of others from the very first detective that, yeah. that really... From Shelby. Yeah, stepped into it. So I, yeah, I was just blown away by this book. There were so many parts. It was so well written. It was so sympathetic and caring in the perfect places. Right. And it gave you the facts in other places. And it was personal. It was honestly, and I think this is something that people forget, even in modern news, where the killer kind of gets glorified. And but I don't think it you read this book only thinking about the killer. Like, throughout so much of the book, I found myself thinking about the victims and what the the detectives and the family were going through, that it was actually a story much more about them and what this one person just did to them. Mm -hmm. So even though that's the focal point, that was not really the message you got from the book. It was... These were people. This is something that happened to them. Mm-hmm. This was a history. This is a brief history of the people that they were. Every person that got killed, she gave, she dedicated some time to them. And you got a backstory. You got a name. You got, right. you know, a little bit of like, this is what their family went through. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of people, can very easily just focus on the juice of 
the whodunit person. Like, mm-hmm. this is the person that did it, and this is what it was, and look at how vicious this person is, and it's less about the victims. And she really, even though, like I said, even though it's about this person, it's not. It's about all of the other people. It's all of it, yeah. When when the book came out, I was I, I was like, why is it called I'll Be Gone in the Dark? And I don't um, – it, it might have been about midway through the book. Like, you finally – you finally learn and said it midway in the book. And then at the very end, there's like a letter that Michelle actually wrote at some point to, she was like to the old man. And he said one time he, and this is, this is an interesting, this was one of the the weird um, crimes that he did was like, he kidnapped this teen and he actually like took her out of her house and he took her to like one of the, um, waterways or whatever mm-hmm. and he was like <laughs> he's upset because she's not the girl that he wanted or something like that it was a weird yeah. situation it was really really weird situation and he ends up saying to her you'll be silent forever and I'll be gone in the dark I like that she ended up using one of his kind of phrases or things that yeah. he said and that's something that he he said all the time it was just that that it seems like it was only said that one time in yeah. that ran in that weird situation. It wasn't one of his normal break-ins and one of his normal yeah. um, scenarios. And this man could just disappear. I just remember reading the one part where the detective was not one of the first detectives, but it was one of the it was one of the later detectives. I wish I could remember which one. But they talk about the stuff that he took because it was never anything valuable. And again, it it wasn't about the burglaries. It was about him having the ability to come in, disrupt a life, Mm -hmm. do whatever he wanted. There was a reason he took personalized items. Yeah. But there was one uh, that just stuck with me where they found the ring of one of the victims on the roof of another house. house to like, it was like two, one or two houses down on the same block. And one of the neighbors had admitted saying, Oh yeah, I heard something strange on my roof. Yeah. I heard a thump. And like, I heard a thump and they were like, Oh, well there's a ring up there. But then the detective was like, no, he's crawling on the roofs. It's one of the ways that he's getting away. Yeah, he was it's hopping just, up onto the roofs and then he's getting up on falling. the roofs and then running away and yeah. stuff was falling out. But then it just goes back to that wasn't the stuff that was important to him. Mm-hmm. And it goes back again to the to the methodology of, of what the crime was actually about because he lost spiral notebook, which probably was extremely important to him because it mm-hmm. had notes written on there it had the map it they called it the homework evidence the homework yeah of the spiral notebook then they found like the random rope but then aside from a handful of things everything that he t- took from these houses and these victims were almost always found yeah. within a couple blocks or a couple houses or, or sometimes or he would the next the next victim's house the next crime yeah so it was never about 
burglarizing the stuff. It was about the ability for him to go through your things, your personal items, and pick and choose what he took from your life. What he thought was important. It was important to you because it had been right. And like, because it was always it was a game. To, yeah, it was, and it was a game to him to like for him to take something and then to from one one crime from one victim and then leave it at the next crime scene. I mean, that's that's a game. Oh yeah. yeah he was playing, you it, know. It was yeah. It's they're crazy. Yeah, they're really crazy. I yeah I want to recommend this book to everyone. Yeah, for sure. I I mean it was I, I would recommend it. You if you are into to true crime books. Yeah. This is definitely a book to to look into and yeah. read. The the flow of it is just I, it's just so much better than I felt, you know, like I said earlier. I felt the fluidity, the flow of it was much better than um in Cold Blood and yeah. Um, just how she personalizes it with her stories and the detective stories and the yeah. um the victim stories. Like she's telling she's telling the story about the victims and the detectives. I mean, she's also telling the story about him a little bit, but that's that's not what it's necessarily all about. Right. It's just him. And if you compare it to other true crime, it definitely has that personalizing touch like you were talking about. But even if you take it away from true crime and you put it in the nonfiction genre, I've read a ton of nonfiction mm-hmm. and this is probably one of the better, more intriguing stories I've read. Right. Because but it's because of her writing. Right. And all of my favorite memoirs or nonfiction or true crime that I've really enjoyed, it just comes down to that personalization mm-hmm. and and the writing style, that kind of prose prose writing style of as a series almost like a series of essays. Right. But it was I can't wait to just tell anybody who's into any type of true crime to read this book yeah. because it's really good. And I, I just can't wait. <laughs> yeah. Go read it. Go yeah. read it. Yeah. It's, it's a must. You need to add it to your, to your list for sure. For sure. Um, I mean, I. And throw away if you have ski masks, go throw them away right now. Yeah, they're creepy. Go throw them away. <laughs> um, I mean, I took a lot of notes. I probably read three or four of them. I feel like we could just go on and talk for. Yes, because. Um, five more hours. Right now I'm looking at what we've done and <laughs> I know. I'm thinking Josie there's no way for me to cut this down to what I normally <laughs> do so we may have to do um two episodes do a spe- like do 
Yeah. Part one and part two, just because. I um, actually was thinking that same thing. So I don't. I don't. Think I so. mean, we. I really could sit and talk for hours about this book. It was so fantastic. It was, so it really, yeah, it was really good. Um, I don't think. I feel. I, I feel like we usually do a pros and cons. I honestly, right now, maybe I'm just off the high of reading it. Yeah. I don't have a lot of cons for this book. I don't think I have any cons for right. this book. Which, maybe down the road, when I think more about it, maybe I'll think of something. Mm-hmm. I don't think I want to think of anything bad yeah. about it. I yeah. just enjoyed it so much. I think Patton Oswald with his um afterward at the end of the book about michelle and just everything else it's so touching it's so heartwarming yeah and it's honestly one of those things whatever you believe in whatever higher power you believe in i really do think she had a helping hand at the end (laughs) After after she'd passed, like towards the end of it, I really do think she had a helping hand. And when you think about the whole thing, it really is like a movie. It's almost like a Hollywood version in real life. You know, mm-hmm. Paul Holes was retiring. He was days within retiring and they right. caught the guy that Not he spent guy. 20 years searching for you know for him too yeah he looked at michelle mcnamara as a partner because they would just run by each other all the time yeah you know he talked about his last email exchange with her and you read Patton's letter at the end or his afterward at the end and it's there was just so much that she gave into this that i personally really feel that there was there was some help from beyond yeah, with for this, sure. where where she she got to see that and have that yeah. that gratification that aha moment. Um, they got him. We got him. Yeah. She it's, and so uh, for our listeners that do don't know much about Michelle, um, it was like April of 2016. Mm-hmm. She passed away in her sleep and it ended up being an accidental overdose of like three or four drugs. Um, her working on this so hard and so much that maybe she thought she lost track of what pills or the you know, hours or, the hours pill, or yeah. whatever. But um, yeah, yeah it's, it was definitely tragic and definitely sad extremely sad it just it I think it just adds a little flair to everything for sure Um, not necessarily a good flair just adds a flair to it and adds I I guess it adds some like maybe not a flair but like mystery yeah to destroy might be a better word mystery right I mean, it kind of just goes in. It's just honestly a case filled with so many questions. It's just another question of right why it happened, how it happened. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It's yeah. sad, but um, 
I mean, go buy the book. Go buy it. about it yourself. Um, go down the rabbit hole and search everything. Yeah, I'm, I would, I'm and definitely going to go down that. I would suggest for our listeners, um, maybe get a notepad and from the beginning, <laughs> write, write down people's names and write down dates and stuff. Um, I, I mean, I, I should have done that from the beginning yeah I definitely wrote down notes and I can't believe and I wrote down some of the the victims and some of the families but I did not write down any of the detectives except for Fred Ray oh yeah I I really just needed like a visual timeline do you know what I mean like she like they talked about it all but like I just needed a visual timeline so um but, you know, if, if you feel like you need a visual timeline or something, maybe get a pen and paper out. Or I guess you could go to um, Professor Google and yeah, and just look there. I'm sure there's really, something. I know. I'm so sorry because I did write down a couple really cool notes that I feel like I do want to go back and say. Can't do it. I do want to talk about how they did get him with DNA with the ancestry. We already talked about that, but they do state in the book that only nine States currently allow familial DNA testing when they have the DNA that they have from crime scenes. If mm-hmm. it doesn't go into CODIS, I thought that was really intriguing. I yeah. honestly thought it might've been a little bit higher than that just because of the developments it's all been making. And then I do have a quote from the very, very end of this. I would like to say, but I really want to make it kind of the last parting statement of this section if we're done or if there's something else you want to add. Sorry, you you were going to have a quote. I just, this is about, uh, this is happening in Visala. It's page 91 and McGowan, he's the officer that chased him down, and then the Golden State Killer um, shot at him, and the the shot hit his um, flashlight. And there's this sentence where she wrote, because they had just been talking about what he looked like, and they kept saying baby face, baby face. The, there's a sentence, and it says. The awkwardly built man-child ran away and disappeared into the night. <laughs> and, like, I just thought that was funny because, you know, it, it was just often said, like, he had a baby face and he was just awkwardly built and, like, awkward man-child, awkwardly <laughs> yeah. built man-child. Um, kind of made me chuckle. Um, and every once in a while she would have, like, this little bit of, like, humor kind of like that. Yeah. Where it was a very serious situation, but, you know. But it was true. He was very. Just a couple. Yeah. A couple words of wit thrown in there to kind of make it. But it was also true. You know, he was a man child. So. Yes. So. I I don't want to rush you. Is there anything else you wanted to say about the book? No, I think we're good. Okay. I mean, we've talked a lot about it. We've already said like four times we were going to (laughs) end. We are. <laughs> so, yeah. So the two people that 
ended up finishing the book for her mm-hmm. with the editors were Paul Haynes, and he is referred to throughout the beginning of the book or throughout the middle to the end of the book as the kid. She clearly didn't want to give up his identity for him. Um, in the third he part, felt, in the yeah, third he, section, they gave He comes names. out and he's like, I'm the kid. Yeah. Um, you could tell that they had, and she respected him and he respected her. You could mm-hmm. just tell in their, in the conversation of their email exchanges and her conversations, her conversation about him. Well, and you he could just moved, tell, he moved from Florida to California. Right. To work with her. Right. And so you could tell that there was a big mutual respect there and she didn't want to give up that identity for him, but he does come out. So Paul Haynes. And then the other person who helps finish the book is Billy Jensen. Mm -hmm. And they were the ones who took over writing the rest of the book that she was unable to finish. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, with what we've talked about, with you and I both being those puzzle solvers, really wanting to go into the psyche and liking the the um, piecing together of everything, I want to leave with this last line. And it's actually the last line in the book that they write. And it says... We will not stop until we get his name. We'll be playing the detectives as well. The end. The end. Man, what a great... Great book. Great book. Great book. Um, so, Sheila, we've talked about this a little bit. What have you pulled from your bookshelf? Lately? I have not pulled anything new. It's the same as it was for Life of that we just posted but um to update you um I'm I finished the Forgotten Garden I'm I am now I have to read I have to read two books by the end of February well technically three counting our our next book um but uh I'm gonna read Raven of the Sea and An Improper Encounter. Those are the two that like I'm like I have to do now that I'm done mm. with this book and now now that I'm done with um January's book club book. So those are our two book clubs. We're doing two books next month for book club. So Oh I'm, yeah. With because you're of meeting the authors. The authors. Yeah. yeah. So awesome. um I mean Technically, I don't necessarily have to read both of them, but like I said, I would. So <laughs> I'm going to. <laughs> right. Um, so that th- that's just what I'm going to focus on right now on top of our, the book that we will be recording for next, which I guess that's actually, Excellent. that'll come out for March, right? Yeah. Of, sometime in March. Yeah. Yeah. So you have a few weeks before you really have to start reading that one. I think it'll be, I think it'll be a pretty easy fast read. Yeah. I honestly haven't even looked at it. Well, partly because it's on my Kindle, but I am excited for it. We probably need to ask Andy if he has started. 
<laughs> we will. Well, because <laughs> well, and we'll get into that with with the next one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I finished obviously this book. Um, I finished book two of the um, Witches Win. Uh, the mystery witch PI series that we found. Um, I really wanted to start book three right away, but I have downloaded a ton of other books, so I refuse to do it. And actually, I found this book only because it was a unlimited recommendation to me, a Kindle Unlimited. But I'm about halfway through it. It's called House Party Murder Rap, an Evie Parker mystery. Mm. And it's set in 1920s England. Um, But it's a nice, simple little read. Um, I thought it sounded like a lot of fun where this American woman ends up moving to England, gets married, her husband dies, and now she's back in England to settle some estates and stuff like that, and it's kind of the whole story of what happens to her when she goes back, and who's trying to kill her, and why, but I do have a couple other books that I have added some of them are a little bit more heavy some of them look just like some fun no-brainer I specifically was looking at at the number of pages I didn't want anything that was really over 200 yeah I I mean like none of the books are over 280 pages because I just was like I am going to need to rest my brain I am going to need something that I can just fall into and mm-hmm. out of really quickly and not need a lot of stuff with. So I do have a couple of those books that I downloaded that I'm excited to read. So. Oh, that's good. Um, yeah, but I do have a lot of happy reading ahead of me. Um, but I am excited to announce the next book. It is my pick. Um, and I think this is going to be a lot of fun. It's by Liz Braswell, and it is called Part of Your World, A Twisted Tale. Dun, dun, dun. And the tagline for this book in the front says, what if Ariel had never defeated Ursula? So I am really excited about this because The Little Mermaid, one, is one of my favorite uh, Disney movies of that time period Uh when all these movies came out. Actually, I liked all of them, but I did love The Little Mermaid. And Ursula is one of my favorite villains. Oh, did not know that about you. Yeah, I do. I do like Ursula. Um, I think she's just a really good, classic, power-hungry villain that I love. So I am excited to read this. The other exciting thing is Andy is actually going to be joining us and reading this book with us. Yeah. So we will get him for the full book, and we will get him for the children's book next month. Yeah. And, like, he so, kind of and, and helped pick this one out, like... Yeah, he, he kind of was like, I think I want to read a book with you guys. 
Yeah, you need to give like, me some time. Know. We started this with him in December. It is almost February. It's the end of very okay. end of January. We have one week left, mm-hmm. and he swore to Sheila and I he would not read a book with us. He doesn't read, and here we are, not even like a full three months into this journey with him if you talk about like all the prep stuff that we had leading up to this that we got him involved with he was like I'm not gonna read a book I'm not a part of that I'll do the children's segment with you I'll do the videos with you I'm not doing anything else and then here we are we did grumpy monkey with him and that night he suggested what if I read a book with y'all yeah. And so we jumped on it. So it, as much as it is my pick, because I did have the final say, Yeah. I we did give Andy a list of books, and we were like, which one would you be likely to read? And well, he, and you actually, because I had text Sheila this book. Yeah. Um, I saw I saw it at a Target, and I text Sheila. And I'm like, this looks good, and Sheila had already heard about them, so she was yeah. all on board for it. And so she, she was actually the one who was like, well, Andy, what about this? And he yeah, was like, I, yeah. I can't remember what he was like. I can't remember what he was um excited, like, or what he told us he kind of liked to read. And then I was like, oh, what about the the Disney villains? And I, I think I sent him the link or whatever. And he was like, oh, yeah. And so then we spent, like, 10 minutes talking about the whole series because there's this – it's. You know, there's this is the one about the beast. There's this one, you know, Ursula. There's Aladdin, Aladdin. So Jafar, Cruella Deville. Um, oh, there was uh, Tangled, Maleficent, um, Tangled's mother, uh, or Rapunzel's uh, like mother that kidnapped her. Uh, what is her mother. name? This is going to bother me. But, yeah, there's... um. But there's basically, like, th- there's a whole bunch of them. I don't know how many of them there are, but... Um, yeah. but they the, And they don't all have the same author. No. There's four of them. There's four of them that are Liz Braswell. And then I think there's one or two that are by another author. And then there's a couple by a couple other different authors. Um, But, yeah, I'm excited about this. I think it'll be a lot of fun. I mean, kind of riding the true crime wave, I did get to download Stranger Beside Me. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And Rule, which, so I'm excited to read that one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I might be a little bit on a Ted Bundy overload, though, because I'm going to read that. I do want to watch the new Netflix series that just came out about him. Right. And there's... A documentary that I follow on Instagram that I can't wait for. <laughs> and then there's like the Zach Efron movie coming out at some point. Yes. So I'll be Ted Bundy overload and he's a narcissist and I'll be over it. But I am excited to read that. Um but yeah, so that's gonna be our book for next month, guys. Go find it. Go find it if you want to join us. I know you can find it at Target. I found it on Amazon for my Kindle. Yeah, I got um, it on Amazon. I ordered yeah, it. Yeah, Andy, Andy ordered it on Amazon and got it, like, the next day, and they said it was going to be two days. So they, it's definitely out there for you to get, 
to join us, yeah. which we are really excited about. And then, of course, uh, hit us up at all the places. Um, do you remember those places, Jesse? I do. <laughs> We're on Facebook and Instagram as Potheads Who Read, a podcast. Um, and then we are on Gmail, which is potheads who read at gmail.com. Yep. And you can send us some emails. Obviously, whatever platform you listen to us on, rate us and yeah. subscribe. Um, that helps us out. We did just get some stats back, which yeah. were kind of exciting of some new downloads. And I think I counted we're in seven different states. Something like that. Yeah, it was about yeah. seven or eight. Seven or eight. Whatever so I sent was, you. I, yeah, yeah. It was just really exciting to see. So yeah. thank you all for that. So talk about us. Share us with your friends. Yeah. Um, but the biggest yeah. thing is. Potterheads was taken, so we went with potheads. We don't have anything to do with drugs. Don't so just friends who love Harry Potter. That's so, why the P-O-T-T, not the P-O-T. Right. So tell people to look us up if you just like books. If you like children's books, we, you can just listen to half of our episodes. Yeah, those ones are um, really short. <laughs> they are really short, although mine might be a little bit longer because my kid's book is a little bit longer. But um, I have to I have to get it in the mail and then I'll know for sure. But look us up on all of that, yeah. and we are really excited for upcoming upcoming books. So yes, so thank you for all of your support and go crack a book open. And thank you for reading with us. Bye. Bye.